All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on the Echo Corpus Christi podcast are solely Davidson Capital Management's and are based on information they consider reliable and are subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk of investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome to another Corona Sode episode of the Echo Corpus Christi podcast. Today we're joined by Jeff Davidson from Davidson Capital Management. He is the president of Davidson Capital Management and also a portfolio manager there. They've been in business for going on 30 years now as um, registered investment advisors, which means um, in my layman's terms, they actively manage investment portfolios for their clients versus trying to merely sell their clients investments. Um, Jeff has taken some time to join us today. He is a co-host of the MoneyWise radio show on Saturdays from 12 to noon, local in Corpus Christi on 1360 KKTX. And also, if you happen to be listening to this in San Antonio, hi, mom and dad, you can catch Jeff uh, 12 to 1 on WAI 1200 in San Antonio. So Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for very much for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. Well, we're glad, we're glad to hear from you today because I know during these um, corona times, a lot of people are looking at their retirement or their perhaps some capital they're sitting on and wondering what to do with it as an investment. And they're nervous. You know, we've probably seen our 401ks go up and down uh, pretty rapidly over the last month if we're watching it that closely. Maybe we've got an investment in an IRA. And um, I listened to the Money Wise guys uh, this past Saturday's episode, and y'all did about an hour on investor behavior. And you talked about some of the risks of of individuals managing their own portfolios. And I thought it'd be a really good topic to touch on from a high level perspective here on the podcast, because some of the suggestions and, and analysis that you and your brother Kyle and that your dad had on the Money Wise Guys on Saturday fit, I think, well with some of the fears that we're all facing now during this time of, of COVID-19 and the uncertainties that we're all facing. So let's talk a little bit about some of the investor behaviors that y'all discussed on Saturday's show. Yeah, at an event like what we have have had happen here, you know, March going into April, um, can really get to investors' emotions mm-hmm. uh, when you have a decline in the markets uh, of this magnitude, and you hear the news of all the people losing their jobs and all the businesses closing, and uh, all the reports about infections and people passing away from from the virus. I mean, it, it could definitely, you know, get into your 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 cycle, you know, psychologically, uh, want cause you to maybe want to make decisions in your portfolio that can be very detrimental over the long term. And and the the emotion that uh, typically happens in, in an event like this is the emotion. I just want to be completely out of everything. I, I just want to be in cash. I don't want to own any stocks. I don't want to own any bonds in my portfolio. All I want to do is just be in cash and just sit and wait. And, and it's you know it's it's reminiscent of what happened in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. And here we are, you know, just twelve years after uh, the the worst 
two-year period in the market, you, you got to go back to the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And here, here we have, you know, the worst month, you know, again, going back to nearly the Great Depression, all, you know, in a short period of time, in, in a relatively short period of time in terms of, of, of market history. And, you know, if you're a, if you're someone, say, in 2008, 09, let's say you were in your, you know, mid to late 40s, uh, you still had a, a pretty long runway, if you will, before retirement. And so, yeah, it, it hurts your portfolio, but you knew you had years to, to make it back and uh, make additional deposits and make new investments. And, you know, for the average investor within a few years, their portfolios are 401k had recovered back to its pre uh, great recession values. And now you fast forward 10 years. Now you're getting even closer to retirement. And you have something like this happen and it's, you know, it scares you. Sure. Uh, you see your, you, you know, most you know, 401ks probably uh, it, it lost anywhere from, you know, 12, 20% on paper in, a, in six weeks. That's, that's substantial. Mm -hmm. That really, you know, scare, especially someone that is so close to retirement saying, well, I don't have that much time necessarily to make that back. Right. Um, and so as the, you know, the days and the weeks, you know, went by, I'm, I have no doubt there, you know, there were many investors that were, that were spooked. We got, we got calls from investors. We got folks wondering, are we, you know, going to go to a hundred percent cash in our portfolios? And the answer is no, mm -hmm. we, we didn't go to a hundred percent cash. Uh, the week after the markets reopened, after the uh, terrorist attacks in September of 2001, we didn't go to 100% cash at any time during the financial crisis, and we didn't go to 100% cash uh, during you know, what happened in March. Now, did we did we substantially reduce or change our asset mix in our portfolios in each one of those events? The the answer is absolutely yes. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that in this particular event. Uh, because you know, we believe that the event was going to be a, a shorter lived than, say, the 0809 uh, situation because of all that's happened with the Federal Reserve uh, bringing their uh, power to bear and mm -hmm. all the things that they've done to help the uh, bond markets and then all the stimulus that came from Washington in such a short period of time, though we did reduce our allocations to stocks uh, during that month, we never got to the, uh, the to the allocations that we did in 0809. We got down to as low as 30% in our portfolio in stocks. But in that particular case, in, 08, in the 0809 time period, uh, we were you know re we were investing that following year when things mm -hmm. looked really bleak, when it was like you were leaning into a hurricane wind. Right. And, but you were buying you, you the things that we were buying were on such were such good values and, and we had such, you know, confidence in, you know, our country as, you know, a, a successful capitalist uh, country that we would, these, these assets that we were buying at such low prices would be far more valuable years down the road. And they were, mm -hmm. and, you know, this, the strategy that we followed in March, there were some similarities uh, to the, some of the strategies that we followed in uh, the 0809 time period, uh, but we've also been putting money back into the markets as the weeks have rolled on, little bits here and there. But today, um, you know, as we're talking here at the end of April, um, 
our asset allocations to stocks are uh, lower than they were at the beginning of 2020 and probably will stay uh, lower for, I would say, at least the next several months at a minimum. But it's all going to be you know, determined by the ultimate path that the virus takes. You know, right. as, we, as we get back to uh, the economy as usual. Um, and it's going to take time for us as an entire country to do that. But as this happens, if uh, the virus stays under control, meaning we're not getting a lot of new infections, then there's going to be, it's going to generate confidence in, in, uh, in our leadership to continue to allow the economy to open up more and more and for consumers to want to get out and want to spend mm-hmm. and want to invest uh, and all of that will have a healing effect on you know what we have you know what we've suffered economically here in the country in the last in the last or last six, uh, two months. So I think you touched on a couple of things there, Jeff. That we we might dive a little bit more into. One of them, the the investment philosophy for Davidson Capital Management sounds like it's long term looking. You know, with some market moves as appropriate based on the present circumstances, but. It's not this idea of yank everything out, hide it under the mattress, wait for Armageddon to be over, and then hope to buy things at a fire sale at the end of the day. It's, it's man, make, make intelligent and informed moves in the mix of things that you're investing in, but not just pull out your cash, bury it in the backyard, and hope that you have a good map for it in two years when you can, when you can get back to it. And the second thing was confidence. You mentioned that a couple of times. And so let's touch a little bit on the idea of of time with the market, and then we can touch a little bit of, about the importance of confidence um, for the market itself. So we'd like to talk. We have this little saying: it's a, it's not a, it's not timing, it's time in. Okay. And and what I, what I mean by that is you're never going to be able as an investor to pick the perfect time to buy an entire portfolio or sell an entire portfolio. Uh, so timing is for the for the vast majority of investors, us professional investors included, we're never going to be able to time the markets perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, all you can really hope for is to try to dollar cost averaging in, in your portfolio. And that's one of the most important uh, aspects about investing. And for our listeners that uh, are saving for retirement, maybe you're recently got hired and maybe, or, or maybe you've been working for 10, 10 years and you're, you're just now starting to think about, okay, I need to start saving for my retirement all the way up to the folks that are, you know, nearing retirement. Cause it's never too late to get started and, you know, saving for your future. But the younger you are, the sooner that you can get involved, putting money in every pay period, through your 401k, if your employer has one, if you and if your employer doesn't have a 401k, you can invest through uh, an IRA. Uh, if you're self-employed, we have there's a, there's a there's an account called a SEP IRA, which is a simplified employee pension. It works just like a 401k, but it's designed for folks that are self-employed. Paying yourself first, which I think is a uh, is a phrase I'm going to borrow from another uh, radio <laughs> radio radio caster. Um, <clears throat> paying yourself first is the the easiest path to financial success in the future, and it doesn't mean that you have to put away ten thousand dollars. I mean, there's just huge amounts of money to to be able to 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 
to uh, accumulate a big nest egg, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. Mm-hmm. If, you're y- if you're young enough, you can start small enough. It may be less than a car payment and you do it through your payroll deduction mm-hmm. and it just automatically comes out of your check. And those investors that are contributing on a continuous basis, their dollar cost averaging in, they don't worry about the big moves in the market like we saw in March. Right. They don't worry about these day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month gyrations because that's just the, the marketplace. And I've been doing this almost 30 years, and I can tell you that the, the way that the market behaves today versus the way it did 30 years ago, there's a lot more volatility. The volatility is never going to go away in this market. And the reason we have so much more volatility now is because of technology, because of people's access to be able to trade on their own. Now it doesn't really even cost anything to, to buy and sell stocks. Not something that I'm advocating our listeners do on their own, unless you have the time to put into it. Uh, but volatility is just here to stay. Right. And, and the way that you mitigate the volatility in your portfolio is you're always participating. Now, are there times when the markets have a particular event that, or series of events that should give investors pause that maybe they should pull in their horns a little bit for a period of time, maybe reduce their allocations to particular stocks or particular classes of stocks or particular, you know, whether, whether you want to have some international exposure or domestic exposure or emerging markets exposure mm-hmm. or all these different, you know, different asset classes that are available out there. Well, the answer is yes. I mean, there are times when there's, when you, when you really shouldn't be in these particular asset classes because they, they have a tendency to underperform other, other asset classes. Now that's what we do, you know, at Davidson Capital is we're, Trying, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out what asset classes are going to we think are going to be outperforming, mm-hmm. which asset classes to avoid, which asset classes to be invested in, which asset classes maybe you want to be uh, more allocated to. And we didn't before all this happened. We didn't own any international stocks. We didn't own any emerging market stocks. We don't own any high yield, otherwise known as junk fixed income securities. Uh, we didn't own any energy, uh, any airlines, any uh, uh, hospitality, you know, travel. We didn't mm-hmm. own any of those uh, particular asset classes in any of our portfolios, which certainly helped uh, uh, mitigate losses when all, the, when all this started to come down in March. But the other thing we did is we also you know, took, took many profits along the way, uh, never knowing how long this was truly going to last because no one truly knows, uh, but we didn't sell everything. Now, all that being said, what is like the average investor that maybe is working to build up that portfolio and uh, maybe isn't quite ready to have someone manage that for them? You know, what should they be doing in their, in their portfolios? Well, the first thing is, is you need to make, what's the plan where you want to be when you retire? Mm-hmm. What is that amount of money? Uh, how do you determine what that amount of money is? There's, there's all these different rules of thumb. Is it 75% right. of my current income? Is it a hundred percent of my current income? How does social security figure into all this? Cause it does. Mm-hmm. And, and so for, for a, 
a young person just getting started out, um, there's this number that you always hear about. I, w- I want to be a millionaire when I retire. So I want to have a million dollars in uh, retirement assets when I mm-hmm. reach say, age 65. And let's say I'm 25 right now. At a 5% compounded return, you're going to need to save, you know, probably about as much as a car payment, you know, four to $500 a month uh, to get to a million dollars at a 5% compounded return in 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, if you're paid bi-weekly, that's $200 bi-weekly out of your check. Pretty simple. That's right. Um, yeah. And that is if, if, you know, if you're young enough to, to get started, the younger you are, the lower the number is to get started. Mm-hmm. Which now, is good because probably the less amount of money you're making. <laughs> If you're if you're a little older, then obviously you've got to save a little bit more. Maybe you don't need to necessarily accumulate that magical million dollar number. Um, there's a lots of tools online that can help help you mm-hmm. determine what that amount of money is that you need to save each month to reach that goal um, at age 65. And that, that kind of touches a little bit. Sorry to interrupt, but one of the investor behaviors y'all you talked about on Saturday's show was this idea of focusing on keeping the eye on the goal. You know, we, we do this in a lot of ways in our lives, but it is especially important when it comes to thinking about our retirement goals. That helps us not jump into a panic when the market is going up and down like it did in March or any other time there are, are major moves in the market. We can say, okay, we know with confidence that our, our goal is X when we retire. We want to be there. And to get there, the baby steps we have to take are do these things. And we just keep doing those things consistently over time as your time in the market versus timing the market comment alluded to. We just do these things over time and we're going to get to our goals and we don't need to be swayed and rocked in the boat when the market is doing all these major crazy things like it's been doing. Right. So it it starts with a plan. Now I know what, okay, I've got a goal. I've figured out what that goal is in terms of what I need to put away each month. And so now what do I do? With, with that money that I'm putting away uh, from each pay period. And it depends on you know, your employer. If your employer offers a 401k, that's typically the best way to save for retirement because it gives you the, it, that particular vehicle allows you to save the most amount of money. You can mm-hmm. save more money in a 401k than you can in a traditional IRA. So if, you're all, if your employer offers the 401k, that'd be the place that I would want to be contributing money. The other thing about a 401k and at most employers is a four is that the employer as an incentive to retain employees, they offer matching dollars. Mm-hmm. And they'll match a, a particular percentage of whatever you contribute up to a maximum amount. And that's free money. Right. That's totally free money. So if you're working for an employer that offers uh, a matching contribution you should at least try to contribute at least the minimum to get that matching contribution in that 401k because it's all free money. So if you don't contribute, you don't get the free money and everyone likes free money. That's right. So you've got your plan, you're making your biweekly or or monthly payroll contributions to your 401k. Now, how do you invest it? And this is, this is where there's a lot of, a lot of variation. Because not every 401k is created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the largest employers here in Corpus 
have some of the worst investment options. They don't really offer, they offer uh, index funds. Mm-hmm. Just they're they're pri- they're 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 put together by their 401k provider. You can't really get a lot of information about them. They're not run by the big you know Fidelities or the Vanguards or the Schwabs or the Goldmans of the world. They're run by other organizations, um, and they don't really give you a whole lot of choices. Um, you know, they give you five, six, seven choices, and that's not a lot of choice. Um, some 401ks will also offer target date funds. Uh, there are some positives and negatives about owning target date funds. Uh, generally, we tend to avoid them uh, because they're more based on the age of the investor mm-hmm. driven than they necessarily are about market, what's happening in the markets driven. And so in times like we had in March or, or periods of like 08, 09, they're, they're, they don't they don't really do much in terms of changing their asset mix because they're more age based mm-hmm. uh, investments. They're not market event market uh, uh, time. Well, I should say timing. They're they're just they're not they're not making investment decisions based on what's happening in the market at that right. moment. So you know I tend we tend to recommend owning things other than those the target date funds. And so for most 401ks, there'll be a, a large cap stock and a mid cap stock and a small cap stock and some international and some bond funds uh, in the portfolio. And so you know, for us you know, right now, uh, we don't own anything overseas. We don't own anything in emerging markets. We don't own anything internationally. Everything mm-hmm. we have is domestic and it's mostly large capitalization stock based. Uh, for folks just getting started out, to keep it simple, uh, you could you could potentially just do you know a third in in say the large cap stocks and a, a third in the mid cap and a third in the in the small cap just to kind of keep it simple get your get your feet wet. Now that's a hundred percent stocks and that's mm-hmm. only appropriate for someone that's really really young, say someone under the age of thirty. Okay. Once you get over the age of 30, then you have to start trying to adjust that mix uh, a little bit more. Now, there will be times when, there, when we'll, then you'll want to own some, some international stocks and maybe some emerging market stocks in the future. Uh, I think you know, for now, uh, right now in this environment, being domestic, I think the U.S. has probably got one of the strongest economies on the planet. Um, and it's, it appears it's going to have w- one of the strongest economies on the planet for the foreseeable future. And so, you know, keeping it simple, just dividing it up maybe into equal parts. Um, if you listen to our show on a regular basis, we talk about our asset allocations. Mm-hmm. And you can glean some information from uh, what we're doing in terms of how we're changing our asset allocations. And so for the for the most of the 401ks, they don't have a name brand mutual fund. You can go on on Morningstar, which is the one of the places where we like to use for research on mutual funds. Uh, the most mutual funds just have these pr- you know, privately developed uh, index funds. Right. So there are some mutual funds. Uh, there are some 401ks out there that do have uh, a, a larger mix of mutual funds to choose from. And you know, generally, from 
the way that I would you know, screen them is, is you use a service like Morningstar and you pick out the best star ratings, five stars being the best, one star being the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, build a portfolio uh, of, you know, five star uh, mutual funds. You don't have to have 10, 15, 20. You don't have to have that kind of diversification in the portfolio. Uh, you know, right now our portfolios consist of uh, four mutual funds and three exchange traded funds. Exchange traded funds, unfortunately, are not available in any 401k that I'm aware of. Um, but I think you could build a really nice portfolio out of you know less than uh, at the, in this t- today less than seven mutual funds. <clears throat> So one of the keys then is to not be overly concerned with trying to buy when the market's low and sell when it's high. And you're, you're suggesting, as I understand it, you put your money in into your 401k or to your IRA. Um, and if you have money on top of that, we'll talk about what to do with that in a little bit. But if you're just doing the minimum to get started and you're planning for your retirement, don't worry about whether the market's going up and down at this second. No. But get into these, get into your 401k and just be consistent over the long term. And then you can, as you age, change the mix of your investments within your 401k to offset, you know, say from high growth to medium growth, but to offset some of the risk and the volatility in the market. Is that about right? That, that would be 100% correct. Yes. Okay. Um, and we, we mentioned a little bit ago that we were going to talk about confidence. And before we started recording, you and I talked about the importance of confidence. And I'd like to kind of, I think it's important to go over that with the listeners because um, that's one of the things that helps the market stabilize. And when I, when I say the market there, I don't necessarily just mean the stock market. I really mean the economy because there's, as you said earlier, um, before we were recording, you gave this table analogy. And I'd love for you to give that for the listeners so that we can get a picture of what really makes up the economy that is at least affected by the government's moves. And um, so let's talk about the importance of confidence in the market as a whole. It, there's a, so much attention paid to the stock portion of the whole investment uh, universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, CNBC, you know, 24 hours a day talking about stocks, mm-hmm. Bloomberg talking about stocks. Yeah, they do talk about bonds. Uh, which we also you know, call fixed income in, in, my, in my industry. But when you look at the entire universe of investing, every security that's available for an investor to put money into, the bond side of the market is far, far larger than the stock market. And so I mm-hmm. use this analogy. If you look at your kitchen table and say that's the entire investing universe, the stock market is maybe the size of a couple of dinner plates. Okay. The rest of it is the fixed income bond market. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about for a moment, just U.S. government debt is, I think, over $20 trillion with a T dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's more than what all the, the value of all the companies. Uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know precisely what that number is, but I know it's a lot more than all the, the sum value of all the stocks traded on the New York Stock Exchange and the other stock exchanges is, is not 20, 20 plus trillion. That's just mm-hmm. U.S. debt. You think about all the rest of the world and then you add into their corporate debt, 
all the you know organizations around the world that have bonds outstanding. You were talking trillions and trillions and tens and tens of trillions of dollars. So the bond market is far larger than the stock market. And so in the last 12 years, we have had two events occur that really had a, the, 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 the reasons that the markets went down in those particular events weren't necessarily because of the stocks themselves and the, their outlooks for the future. It had to do with what was happening in the fixed income side of the market, the bond mm-hmm. side of the market, because confidence was eroding. And when confidence starts to erode in the largest portion of the investing universe, investors that hold those instruments that can't sell them to other people for a price that they wanted to sell them for say, okay, well, I'm not going to sell you that instrument at that price. Therefore, I'm going to sell this other instrument. In this case, we're talking about stocks, common stocks, because it's so liquid. Right. And so I'm going to sell this instrument because I don't want to sell that instrument. And the stock instruments were being sold at any price they could get. And you had stocks in the, you know, the Great Recession that went down 30, 40, 50, 60 percent, mm-hmm. far below what the real economic situation of those companies value was. Right. Far not based on any projection of the company's actual health. Right. It was just the panic. On it, it was just the panic. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There, was conf- there was a loss of confidence. Now, the Federal Reserve in, in 08, 09 put together many different programs, TARP and all those other and acronyms we talked about, to create confidence in the fixed income side of the market, the bond side of the market, mm-hmm. to stem the tide of all, all the selling of the stock side. Right. And the confidence there means confidence that these companies who are uh, are taking out, I'll just call a bond a loan, if you will. They're f- effectively taking a loan. And the confidence is the company is going to pay it back at the interest that they've agreed to pay it back. So it'd be like a bank having conf- loaning me money to buy a house or a mortgage company loaning me money to buy a house. They're, they're going to have confidence in me based on whatever metrics they use that I will pay my loan back with interest at the appropriate times. So confidence in the in the fixed income or bond market is kind of the same idea, right? Right. And so what was happening in, in the fixed income market then and what was happening here in March is that there were organizations that maybe they only had these instruments to sell bonds mm-hmm. and their counterparts were giving them prices that didn't make any sense relative to the the economic value of the instrument that, w- that the other party was trying to sell. There was, it's a supply and demand. Sure. So there's all this demand to sell and there's was this limited demand to buy. Therefore, prices came down. Therefore, that had an effect on, okay, do I, am I going to sell this instrument at this price? Or am I going to go sell another instrument like you know stocks mm-hmm. at, at, a, at a much better price? What the Federal Reserve did by stepping in as quickly as they did, this is what was different than what happened in 08, 09 is this, the Federal Reserve stepped in so fast with so many programs saying, look, we will buy these instruments. We will buy these instruments at a, and I can't, and I can't precisely use the words that they use, but we'll, at, a, at the reasonable market price. Right. Not at the greatly marked down 
low confidence price. We are here to buy these instruments and we're going to buy all these different instruments. And so that created a background, a foundation of increasing confidence. Mm -hmm. And as confidence began to increase that the Federal Reserve was going to be sure that the fixed income, remember the big table, right? that that market was not going to lock up and they were just going to go in and raid stocks like they did in 08, 09. Well, that started to create confidence in the stock side. Mm -hmm. People started to be less fearful that the, the stock market was going to get raided like it did in 08, 09. Now, did it, did it hurt? Were there a lot of companies that got hurt? Yes. Were there a lot of companies that got hurt more than others because of their particular economic situation, the particular industries they're involved in? Absolutely. You know, the airlines and the mm-hmm. airline manufacturers and the travel related companies. And then we, you know, oil, you know, we've had all kinds of talk about oil sure. here of late, you know, very important to South Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the Fed, the, the Fed said, look, we're going to buy, we're going to, we're going to backstop all of these investment grade securities as much as anybody wants to sell. And we're going to print money until we have no more trees and no more ink and no more machines to print the money. I mean, that's basically what they said. That's right. So that is, you know, if that doesn't instill confidence, they have the cash, they can keep printing it. Not going to guarantee you that cash is going to buy today (laughs) what it did a a year ago, but as long as they have the power of the press, they can backstop, stop the biggest part of the market and therefore instill confidence. Mm-hmm. And so maybe for those folks who are watching, their, if they have the ability to watch their 401ks this closely and get this level of information, they saw a quick dip, especially if their 401ks were heavy on the stock side. Uh, they would see a quick dip and then they saw it come back. And is that based on um, the confidence rebounding in the market after the Fed did what it did? Well, I, I think that is, that's part of it. What the government has done is part of it. <clears throat> Uh, I think the other part of it is is that you know we seem to have started to turn the corner on the virus uh, in terms of new infections, and now you know, you know here in Texas, starting uh, Friday, May the first, we're going to start to reopen the economy, as are some other states, and uh, the success of opening the economy up even further is all going to be uh, determined by how these numbers stack up in the next month to six weeks. If the numbers continue to improve in terms of infections, then the there's going to be more states opening up mm-hmm. and Texas will open up even more. That's going to instill even more confidence. But even the economies, you know, opening up doesn't necessarily guarantee that people are going to go out and spend. Uh, we can open up all these businesses, but we can't make people go in and spend their money at these businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a different kind of confidence. And that kind of confidence is going to take time. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take hard evidence that we have you know, turned the corner uh, in the numbers in terms of the coronavirus uh, uh, infections to really instill people going out you know, more and more and more and spending money. I think there's definitely been, there has to be pent up demand right now. What that pent up demand is precisely, no one really knows yet, mm-hmm. and right. and that's and that's one of the that one of the reasons you know from an un, from one of the unknowns from our point of view, that's one of the reasons why we're not back to 
you know, fully, you know, maximum mm-hmm. allocations to stocks at Davidson Capital because there still are some unknowns, uh, and there's some you know, pretty big unknowns out there. You know, as you know, today, you know, April the 30th, we're approximately 55% invested in stocks in the in the average client portfolio, down from 70. Mm-hmm. Uh, about two and a half months ago, we were at 70% allocations to stocks, which is our maximum. Uh, and it's it's going to take you know a number of months of data coming out mm-hmm. uh, for the you know these e- the economic numbers are still. You know, today's, you know, we had some economic numbers on Thursday about unemployment that were a little worse than expected. Uh, they're scary. They're very scary economic numbers. There's, there's no other way to describe them so, uh, uh, as scary. Numbers that none of us have ever seen that have, that have managed money and, you know, for, you know, 30 years for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think these numbers uh, are going to turn around just as quickly as they came down, mm-hmm. uh, they're not necessarily going to go all the way back to where they were by the end of the year. The speed at which they come back will be this will determine the speed at which we truly uh, in the markets fully recover back to the all-time highs that we saw in in February of this year. I think at, at the very least, that's going to take the rest of this year. That would be a completely best case scenario if we got back right. to all-time highs by the end of the year. I think it's going to be more like 12 months minimum, 12 to 18 months to get back to the all-time highs. We've had a very powerful move in the month of April mm-hmm. uh, to have this kind of recovery. This was not something that we were necessarily expecting uh, have it co- come back this far this fast, but I think it's the confidence that has been built mm-hmm. by all these programs that took many, 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 many months in 0809 to put into place, not only from the Federal Reserve, but also from the government. The speed at which they were put together in March is is really the <clears throat> the, the majority of the reason why the markets have come back as much mm-hmm. as they have, because there has been confidence restored. And I think hope, and dad with my father, <laughs> he would say hope. Hope is a dirty four-letter word, right? Um, especially when you're talking about in terms of investing. You know, we're hoping that oil prices go up and hoping that you know this company comes back. Uh, but I think you have to have uh, a little bit of hope, a little bit of faith mm-hmm. uh, when something like this happens. Uh, that uh, we, as a, as a as a capitalist country. Um, as a company built on small businesses like uh, Davidson Capital, that uh, uh, we will come back from this and we will come back stronger for this. We will learn from this uh, if this should ever you know, happen again. I think the, the fact that what the government did, what the Federal Reserve did, they learned from what happened in 0809. They right. knew that they could not roll this out over three or four months and have all this wrangling in Congress, mm-hmm. voting back and forth, because we saw what happened when they did that in 0809. It was terrible for the markets. And so they were, at least they learned from that and we didn't make those same mistakes. That's right. So when, if this ever happens again, I hope and pray it doesn't, that we'll be even better equipped uh, as a, you know, a country from an economic and a social point of view to be prepared for this uh, in the future. 
So we've talked a bit about the importance of um, being invested for the long term with your long term plan. We've talked about the effect of confidence on the markets. As we're seeing more confidence in the markets, the fixed income and the stock markets, we're seeing generally more confidence in the country. What are some of your thoughts for those folks listening who may have some disposable income at this moment? And they're thinking, gosh, this might be a great time for me to go buy a bunch of oil company stocks, or this might be a great time for me to go buy that rent house I've had my eye on down the street because it might be up for a fire sale right now. What are some of your thoughts for those types of investors? So before before we get to those, I want to be sure the one thing is make sure that if if you know, if you're if you're in a 401k at work, make sure that you've you're contributing the maximum to that 401k. Okay. If you if your spouse is working um, and has 401k, make sure that your spouse is also contributing the maximum. So once you have contributed the maximum amount to both of those 401ks and you've contributed to your child's education through a 529 plan, which we can talk about another time. <laughs> once you have done all of that, <clears throat> and if I could put on my Dave Ramsey hat a little bit for a moment and paid off all your debt, uh, house not necessarily included, but paid mm-hmm. off all, especially all your credit card debt, and you still have some money left over, let's talk about this. what you could do with it. So having some money in a brokerage account outside of your retirement accounts. Uh, for the for the average investor, I don't really recommend owning individual stocks. For the, for the average investor, typically doesn't have enough time to do the homework to buy individual stocks. Now, I know there's been all kinds of news here lately about oil mm-hmm. and the oil companies and how much they've come down. And I have received a number of phone calls from folks wanting to invest in stocks having to do with oil companies. I even had someone call me asking about oil futures because they were talked about so much here Mm -hmm. recently. Uh, Futures, ladies and gentlemen, you don't want to touch that. Those are for the the pros. I don't even know anything about them and I don't touch them. Individual oil company stocks. uh, We haven't owned an oil company stock in our portfolio in years. Um, there's certainly a lot of them out there. Uh, I, I prefer to, I, I look more at the big integrateds like the Mm -hmm. Exxon's, the Chevron's, the ones that are well capitalized, uh, have, have still have good credit ratings, not really interested in any of the drillers. Uh, most of them have, you know, questionable credit quality in their fixed income and their bonds and some of the, many of them are selling for under $10 a share. You know, some of them really, I don't even know if they're going to be going concerns. I would avoid all those like the plague. There are some exchange traded funds, which are uh, instruments where you can buy a basket of a particular industry, mm-hmm. but knowing when you buy an exchange traded fund, you're buying the good with the not so good companies. Uh, but it is a way for to just completely diversify away into one particular industry. I just, I, I, as for the average investor, unless you're going to put a portfolio together of you know ten different industries, I would tend to you know avoid or more. I would tend to avoid just say I just want to open up an account and put some money in and buy put five thousand dollars into an oil company stock. Uh, it's not really a diversified portfolio. I'd prefer to see you buy a. <clears throat> 
a you know fully diversified, you know, no load, always no load, no sales charge, mutual funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> expenses are very important. The easiest way to improve your performance in a portfolio is to control your expenses. That's one thing you, that you can control as an investor is how much you're spending uh, to invest, whether that be to have somebody managing it for you or whether you're doing it yourself and you're, and you're looking at, you know, the, the uh, expense ratios of particular mutual funds. We don't ever want to buy anything that has a sales charge up front ever, 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 because there's always a mutual fund out there that it's just as good, if not better, mm-hmm. it doesn't charge the sales charge to get into it. <clears throat> so that's where I would be. I would just own, own some, you know, good, high quality, no load, diversified uh, stock mutual funds uh, in the same kind of proportions like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're just getting started investing, you have some large cap stock, you have some mid cap stock, you have some small cap stock. Uh, listen to the show money wise. And we'll t- we talk about our allocations periodically and where we're invested. Um, but you know, for the, for most investors, buying individual stocks is something that I really would uh, avoid mm-hmm. in terms of real estate. Most of the f- folks that I you know talk to uh, that uh, you know for for myself personally, uh, when I look at my portfolio, I believe that the house that I'm living in is as much real estate as <laughs> I want to have. I don't necessarily want to have any more real estate. Um, it, this is enough diversification by just you know the single family home that I'm, that I'm living in. And for most investors, it's probably the case. Uh, the the folks that I've spoke with that have been most successful in the rental business, uh, uh, not strangely enough, tend to be realtors uh, that are able to you know, really spot the good deals for anyone mm-hmm. else knows about them, um, who have uh, who have the time and, and expertise to deal with <clears throat> renters and deal with upkeep and all of the administrative aspects of managing a uh, rent house portfolio terms of, you know, right now I haven't seen prices, haven't really seemed to come down that much, you know, even though well, what's, what's happened here recently, because inventories are, are still historically low. Uh, most of the, you know, the lower price homes here in Corpus don't tend to last very long on the market. So you really have to act quickly. The things you have to ask yourself if you want to get into the rental property game is, you know, how much time are you willing to spend on it? Um, and under the way that I look at returns on rental properties, which is maybe not the precise accounting way to look at, it, I simplify it down a little bit. As, <laughs> as, I, as I say, okay, what's the value of the property? And uh, so that's it's like a fixed. It's, when I look at rental property, I look at like a fixed income, a bond mm-hmm. insurance. And so that bond has a face value, if you will. Mm-hmm. The face value is the value of the property, the true value, not what you think it is because your neighbor's got his house listed for $40,000 more. It's, it's what it's, you know, what it's true value is. And then you've got these cash flows, the rent, and you add up all that rent and then you subtract out the insurance, you subtract out the taxes, property taxes. If you have HOA dues, homeowners association dues, you take all those expenses out and that is the best that you can Mm -hmm. get. That's the highest return that you could expect in a particular year. You have the renters there all year. You don't repair anything. 
you just collect the rent, pay the expenses, and you have this number. And you, you take that number and you divide it into 150000 or whatever the value of the house is. Mm-hmm. And that gives you a return. And that is that gives you a percentage number. And that is your best possible scenario. <clears throat> For me, personally, if it's, if it's not making me more than probably 8 9%, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it because I feel pretty confident that over the long term, I'm going to re- doing what I'm doing in terms of investing. Right. I'm going to make five to 6% compounded. How much time are you, but see the time it's, it's the time that you're spending on it. And what is the value of that time? How often do you have to go collect rent checks? How many mm-hmm. calls a week do you get from your renter or renters if you own more than one property about this problem or that problem? And right. how much do you have to spend on all that upkeep? You know, what is that headache? Mm-hmm. What is that headache in terms of time worth worth it to worth it to you? Sure. Uh, and that's so that's you know, for me personally, I've I've kind of shied away from from owning rental properties. I know a lot of people that have been that, that own a number of them. They're mostly real estate agents. They do this as a living. They're they have the time to devote to it. But for someone that's let's say you got a two income family, two full time jobs, and you take on a rental or two, right. um, that could be really really time consuming. And what I found is if the, if the property is not rented a particular month, generally it works out to like for every month that it's not rented is one percent off your return that year. So very quickly, if, if you don't get the property re-rented, now you've got a return potentially that's going to be less than you know what you would have otherwise had received. You just put it in to a fully liquid investment. So that's the other thing is liquidity. Right. If liquidity is important to you, then rental houses is not the way to go. Which basically means you can't sell them as fast as you can sell a stock, for example. See, I, I could sell a stock with a, with a click. Right. We could sell hundreds of millions of dollars in securities in literally a click. Mm-hmm. And in this day and day day and time, it doesn't cost anything now to even buy and sell stocks. They've, That's right. Well, most of the brokerage houses have taken away all the commission costs, which were minimal to begin with. Now it's zero. So you could, you know, as fast as you can snap your fingers, you can buy and sell hundreds of times the value of any rental house that you can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's, and to some people that's important. Some people it's not important. Uh, to me, it's important. Liquidity is, is, is paramount in any, in any portfolio. Sure. You never exactly. want to invest in something where you don't have liquidity. That's why when we, when we're on our show, we don't talk about owning annuities. We don't talk about owning private placements. We don't talk about anything to invest in that's not traded on the public markets. Mm-hmm. That's all that we invest in is instruments that are traded on the public markets. <clears throat> I think sometimes people regarding real estate specifically get this idea of passive income in their heads that real estate investments are passive income. And, you know, they are to the extent that you're not the one who's actually managing your property, but uh, to, to not be the one managing your properties, you're paying someone else to, which of course cuts in. But I think I think the the bigger concept of passive income is I'm not doing a lot to it and I'm making money for the future. But I, that same concept is relatively true in the investment world itself, in, in stocks and bonds and whatever market you're investing in. 
the idea is you're not having to do a lot and you're you're earning money for the future right and and you know there's obviously like in any investment there's risks mm-hmm. you know rental properties the risk is your tenant tears the place up and you have to go in there and do until thousands of dollars in repairs that you might not be able to recoup from the previous tenant. Property values go up, property values go down, your insurance, your property taxes, you all, those are always going up. Right. You're, you always have to find, you, you, renters don't typically stay in the properties forever, so you have to find a new renter. Uh, I know that there are some tax benefits and there's some, sure. there's some write-offs and some things, and I've, and I've oversimplified the way that I look at returns when it comes to, to rental property. Um, I just, you know, I think from, for me personally, from a, you know, hassle factor, from a time in factor, uh, there are other easier ways that are far more liquid uh, to invest that money. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so when everyone, when everyone comes to me talking about rental properties, I always kind of just, I give you this, you know, that's my, that's my take on it. You'll probably have a, you have a real estate agent as a guest, maybe in the future. And they'll tell you a completely different story. About well, that. I think that, no that is such an important, uh, an important conversation though, Jeff, because what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. And sometimes folks, um, will, will like their, uh, their retirement set up in a way where a professional like you is managing it. Um, and then other people might say, you know what, I really like this idea of holding real estate because to me it's like gold and it always goes up and, and we're probably not going to get off on precious me- precious metals in this conversation. But um, I'll just refer people to y'all's most recent uh, episode of Money Wise and they can hear about precious metals. But I think it's important that people evaluate the level of risk that they're willing to take versus the amount of time they're willing to invest and versus the ease of the investment vehicle itself and all of that kind of looks at things like liquidity and how fast they can get out of an investment if they want to versus um, versus how much effort they have to put into the investment itself. And all of that needs to be looked at with this with this individual's goal in mind. What, where do you want to get when you're retiring? Do you want to retire um, and have 35 rental homes that you have to manage in your retirement where you're not really retired? Now you just went from your office job to your uh, driving around in your truck and fixing windows that people break and whatever else? Or do you want your retirement to be, um, do you want to be nearing retirement and then seeing what happened in March and suddenly your hair's on fire because your portfolio just lost 20% of its value? And oh my goodness, I'm retiring in a year and what do I do? And everybody has to decide for themselves how it's they a, want to manage those it's things. A quality, right? It's a quality of life decision. Mm-hmm. You know, do you. If I'm if I'm in retirement, I don't know that I necessarily want to be spending my entire day out, you know, fixing my 35 rental properties. But if I enjoy doing it, sure. uh, and there are, I know there's people that will be listening that that uh, that have a lot of their net worth tied up tied up in real estate, whether it be rental properties, whether it be raw land, whether it be commercial properties. Um, <clears throat> that's just I, my forte has been highly liquid investment instruments that's that's how we've built this business um and and you know so i as i say i kind of talk my own book when i <laughs> when i'm talking about uh highly liquid instruments uh, and for you know, to me for me i've got as much real estate as i as i could ever want and for most people they probably 
their home is is for you know for a lot of folks their home is their biggest portion of their net worth. You bet. <clears throat> so as we as we draw this um, Corona so to a close here, Jeff, are, are there any other um, investor behaviors that you want to address before we close? I will at the end of this refer folks to your your conversation with your brother and dad from last weekend's Money Wise Guys episode. Um, but if there's another one you want to address quickly while we're here on on this Corona episode, we've got some time to do that. Well, you know, fear and greed are very powerful emotions. And fear and greed at many times, you know, in the 30 years that we've managed money uh, have driven uh, the stock markets. We, we saw what greed in its most purest, most aggressive form was like at the end of the 20th century, mm-hmm. the dot-com era. Um, and, and greed can, can drive people to make uh, really bad investment decisions. You know, any, you know, any extreme emotion, you know, and greed can be an extreme emotion. You know, I know Gordon Gecko from that movie, Greed is Good. Right. Uh, you know, okay, I, underst- I understand all that's That's Hollywood. Right. Uh, greed is not necessarily good when it comes to uh, managing a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people, uh, I think it was, was it Warren Buffett said, uh, when, when people get gre- greedy, I get fearful. And then when I and people get fearful, I get greedy. I think right. I, you can run it both ways. <laughs> sure. uh, you know, we saw what the end of the 20th century, what rampant greed looks like. And we saw how that ended. And, you know, we never, as an, as an investment advisory shop, we never bought into that dot-com mess. And it certainly drove a lot of stocks up that they were not necessarily uh, related to uh, the dot-com era. Right. But, you know, greed, that, and we saw what happened when greed crashes mm-hmm. and people get hurt. And then we saw the exact opposite of that. We saw the exact opposite of that in 0809. Right. And, and, and then it was a, and it was a confidence, lack of confidence driven fear. And people made investment decisions. Then, you know, the, the get me out at any price uh, decision uh, that had detrimental effects on their portfolio for years to come. And, you know, we had talked about one particular example when Glenn Beck went on his radio show, I think it was in 2008 and admonished his listeners to get out of all of their stocks. And, and it was complete insanity. And we went on our radio show and talked about that. And then he came on a week later and said, don't listen to me. I don't know anything about anything to do with, with investing. It's like, well, it, that, that is a true statement. Right. Mr. Beck. <clears throat> But you you can see just in a matter of eight years, you know, from the end of the dot com to 08, in eight years we saw the most extreme greed and we saw the most extreme fear, and those emotions drove investors to make long bad you know bad long term investment decisions. We got a little taste of that in March. Mm-hmm. A totally you know a totally different set of its circumstances. But again, it was driving some investors back to this, I got to be out at all costs fear. Right. And as you know, if they had done that and they were still sitting in cash today, April was, I think, the best month in more than 30 years in the markets. And if you're not in it, you can't win it. No, it's not the lottery. 
but uh, you got to have a long-term view. That's right. You, you got to be willing to take a little bit of money off the table when you need to, and you got to be willing to to lean into the wind when the when the hurricane winds are blowing hard. Um, because that's where you, that's where you really you can really have an opportunity to buy some things at, at some lower prices. We saw that in 0809. We saw that in March. Uh, time will tell as the months go by if we if we retest what happened in March. But I think the level of fear in investors has certainly come down, and the level of fear has come down because the level of confidence is going higher. That's right, and. I- and Jeff, to kind of summarize a little bit here, I feel like your suggestion that folks develop their plan and keep their eyes on their plan is what really helps m- temper these emotions, right? The fear and the greed in particular. And then having that long-term look to the horizon goal allows a lot of these um, emotional machinations in the market kind of fall by the wayside and keep, keep an individual investor from losing sight of, it, of what's actually important. Exactly right. Always have a plan. That and, plan, and you know, if, you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of sign off for today. I will encourage listeners to visit davidsoncap.com, davidsoncap.com. I'm going to put these in the show notes too. Locally in Corpus Christi, you can call Davidson Capital Management at 906 0070. If you want to use a toll-free number, that's 800-275-2162. Again, I'll put all this in the show notes. Please be sure to catch Jeff and his brother Kyle and their dad, John, on MoneyWise on Saturdays from 12 to 2 at 1360 KKTX or in San Antonio at 1200 WAI. Or on their website, you can find links to their episodes from the radio show, which you can listen to in a podcast format. Thank you again, Jeff, for taking time to come on this Corona episode of the Etcho Corpus Christi podcast. Thank you for having me, Rob. Really appreciate it.